I'm your host, Amber Hollingsworth. I'm an addiction specialist, and I've been helping people beat addiction for more than 20 years now. This podcast is for people who want to know how to get through to an addicted loved one, for people who are tired of being told that they just need to stand back and wait for their loved one to decide to do something about it. Subscribe to this podcast to learn how to outsmart addiction and put this whole mess behind you for good. The most critical thing that you absolutely have to do if you're trying to help an addicted loved one is you have to get your heart right. I want to go a little bit deeper into the issue because when you get your heart right about the situation and you're coming at someone in a loving, caring, helpful way, that comes through in your being. It comes through in everything that you say. If you don't have your heart right about it, if you're coming from an angry place and a fearful place, which I get that there are good reasons to feel angry and fearful. I don't want to minimize that at all and very justified to feel that way in most cases. But when you let those emotions dominate you, even when you're saying and you're doing the right things, it definitely gets across. And so it's not until we have this shift of heart that it becomes different, that it becomes easier. I say all the time on here that it's really like a parallel process that the person with the addiction goes through and the family goes through. It really is the same steps. It's the same process. Now, most people think that the person with the addiction has to go through the process first and then the family gets better which it can happen that way. But another way for it to happen is for the family to get better first and the family goes through the process and then the person with the addiction will go through the process. That's also a way to get there. In fact, that's usually like the faster, quicker way to get there. But earlier this week, I had someone in my office who's on this journey with trying to get rid of an addiction that this person has. And they were saying to me, they'll do good for a while and then they'll relapse. They'll have months clean and then relapse and then get six more weeks clean and then relapse. And they were saying to me, I just feel like other people, it's like when they get sober, eventually it gets easier for them. And they're not thinking about it all the time and they're not craving it all the time and it's not as hard for them. And he and I were talking about that together. And I said, you're right on some level, because for most people, eventually there's a heart shift that happens in your recovery process. And when that happens, it all gets easier. And you don't feel like you're just on good behavior. You don't feel like you're constantly withholding. It's whole lens changes. And it's not like 100% completely easy all the time, but it's not like this white knuckling it feeling all the time. And I would say that it's the same thing for the families. There is this period where maybe you just started watching videos and you're trying to listen to some of the things I'm telling you, trying to change the way that you're interacting with the other person. In the beginning, when you do that, it will be somewhat forced. It will be somewhat of an act. There's no way around it. You don't go from, I'm angry, I'm hurt, I'm scared, I'm resentful, to you listen to a video, Amber told you to say this, and then you say it and your heart's all right. That's not the way it's going to happen. Typically, the way it happens, just like with the person who gets sober, and they get sober and they start to feel better, and it's not this big epiphany moment. It's a process. It's a heart shift that happens a little bit and a little bit and a little bit. And the same thing happens for the family. Most of the time when you change the way you're acting with your loved one, they will change the way they interact with you back. Now that change will happen long before their substance abuse will change. 
So I'm not saying you change the way you interact with them and then they quit using drugs and alcohol. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm saying you change the way you interact with them, change the way they interact with you. They almost can't help it. People are like systems. And if you change one person, the other person changes. It's just the way that it is. So if you change you, you're going to change something about them. And you have to at least get out of the bad guy role as the family member. You have to at least get to the point where they don't view you as the enemy. That's like bare minimum. But if you can get your loved one, your addicted loved one to the point that they view you as an ally and they trust you and they want to talk to you about things, now you're like master ninja level status. And now you've got a whole different thing. And you're probably not going to get to that level of things until you have the heart shift. You're not going to get the master ninja level until you have a spiritual change in the way that you feel about it. So let's talk about What's the difference? What does that spiritual heart change look like and feel like? The first one of the things that you have to do is I think you have to believe in your heart and in your mind that the person can get better and that people do get better from this. It's easy for me to believe because I see it every day. I get to talk to people who are at every level of this, the beginning, in the middle when it's hard, and then, you know, when they're out there living their best life and everything's fabulous and they're so glad they did it. And that gives me a perspective, which makes it easier to see that people do get better for this. So if you're having a hard time thinking that it can happen for your loved one, imagine the sort of subliminal messages that you're sending when you don't believe it can happen, right? It's going to come out of you in some way, even if you're not saying that to them, because it's just how you feel and it's going gonna, it's gonna to resonate and it's going to change the way that you interact with them in some way, even if you're not really fully aware of that. So the first thing, you, you got to believe that they can get better. A lot of people say, my loved one's never going to get better because they told me they just love to drink or they just love to do drugs and they just never going to stop. I'm like, dude, I don't think I've ever met any of them that had a dish problem didn't feel that way at some point. Most of them say it at some point, but they all feel it at some point. And I'm like, okay, whatever. That's just a big talk. That's what I like to call it. That's just a big talk. Don't worry about that. Sometimes people say, they've tried a bunch of times. And I say, well, it takes everybody a bunch of times. You have all these things in your head about why this person can't get better. You're subconsciously holding your own self back, which is probably impacting that person as well. Now, I will say that as a family member, there's a point where you have to step back. And it's not necessarily, you don't think that they can get better, but you do get to a point sometimes where you think, I can't have a front row seat to this situation any longer. I can't be there with them side by side while they figure that out. But if you're still in the game with them and you are still trying to help them, then you do need to believe that they can get better. The other heart shift that you have to have, it's a filter change, is you have to start to see their good qualities which is hard when someone's been a big jerk ball and not been very nice and really disappointed you and let you down a lot of times. I get that it's super hard to see anything nice about them. I totally understand that, but I want you to dig deep. And the reason why this is so helpful is because when you can see the good parts of someone else, two things happen. One is they like you better and they want to be around you because who doesn't want to be around someone who thinks positively of them? And two, it helps them to see the good parts of themselves. And that's another thing that needs to happen for this person that's addicted. There are these phases, which we talk about a lot, right? They have to realize that they do have a problem. They have to realize the magnitude of the problem. They have to realize, come to terms with what it's going to take to get better. And they have to 
decide that they have what it takes to get better. There are a lot of pieces. And so you, the same thing, you have to understand what you're dealing with, but you have to believe that they can get better. And then when you can see their strengths and their positive qualities, that's going to help them see their strengths and positive qualities. And it's going to help them want to be the best version of themselves. I would probably say if most helpful thing that I probably do with the people that I see is, and this just comes pretty naturally to me, but I can just see their positive quality, usually in the first session. <laughs> if not by session three, I can like totally see something about who they are. And I just focus on that. Like I just talk to them about that all the time. And the more positive you send them, the better they want to be, the more, because guess what? Now you're the administrator of the dopamine. Because <laughs> when you're thinking positively and genuinely giving someone positive feedback, now you're giving them that dose of dopamine because you're giving them something positive and you're dealing with a person who really doesn't get that very many places anymore. And so now you can compete with the addiction a little bit. That's how you get on the level with the addiction. You beat it at its own game. So it has to be genuine and it has to be more than like the standard. I love you. You're really a good guy deep down inside. Like it has to be specific and it has to be real. So you have to say specifically what it is. And it works best when you can say, but give them examples about why you're saying it. <laughs> you are resilient. Maybe that's the quality in someone. And then you give them three examples of how they're super resilient and they've gotten through things that other people can't get through. It has to be real and authentic. Otherwise it's just whatever. They're just saying that or whatever. Once they see that you really can see these things inside themselves, I'm telling you, they're going to want more of it because one of the highest human needs, there is a need for connectedness. And if there's one thing that is powerful enough to beat addiction, that's it. feels like that's some kind of like movie, like with a romantic ending, right? But it's true, right? The one thing that's powerful enough, the one human drive that's powerful enough to beat an addiction is connectedness. Think about even people that are really fully addicted. They still, most of them want some level of connectedness, even if it's connectedness with their other using friends, they want to belong somewhere. They want to be seen. That is still something that's alive in most people, unless they're literally in stage terminal, like really far gone, that is still in there. And that's a power that you have to bring that person back from that addiction. Like it's bringing their true self forward almost. And you have to be able to see it. And then bonus, when you interact with someone like that, guess what happens? They treat you nicer and it makes it even nicer to treat them that way. And then it's like a feedback loop, which is the same process that happens for a person that has an addiction, right? Like they get sober, probably faking it at first and just white knuckling it, but then they feel better and then they like their life better. And then their energy is different. And then they start getting better energy back from other people. And then it's a momentum and a cycle in the right process. You can get a cycle going in the right way, just like you can get a cycle going in the wrong way. So just remember that. So I believe they can be better. You got to find their strengths. Now I used to say when I dealt with teenagers, a lot, I would tell their parents, I'd say, you need to find them doing something right this week. And I don't care if you have to make it up. <laughs> if you have to start from making it up, or at least just find something that's maybe it's like this big of a good thing, make it into this big of a good thing at first, because it's a seed and you're growing it when you're doing that. It's like you're nurturing, you're putting some miracle grow on the good thing. That's what you're doing. I want you to imagine that when it's happening. So find something. Now I used to say you have to make it up, but I was mostly teasing about that. You got to find something that's genuine. Otherwise it doesn't work. It's 
think that you're just like saying the nice thing and you don't really mean it. Just like when other people try to flatter you, they don't mean it doesn't work. You can feel that, right? Those are two really big things that you need to do, but there are some don'ts. Even though I'm all about being positive, even though I'm all about being hopeful, I don't think you should be naive about it either. And this is where the delicate balance comes in. So do be positive. Do think they can get better. Do see their wonderfulness, but don't be stupid. <laughs> don't be naive. Find their good qualities and see what they're doing, but also see where they're manipulating and where they're lying to you and lying to themselves and where they're doing not so good. Now you don't want to comment on all that necessarily, but you definitely want to see it because if you just stay all the way over here on the positive sunshine and rainbow side, then this person will probably interact with you nicely, but they're going to fool you. And it's hard for someone to respect you when they can fool you. So you don't need to call out every little lie or manipulation just because it's not necessary, but you also can't be just completely naive and believe everything that someone's telling you. So you do need to be honest with yourself. And I find people on both ends of the spectrum. Some of the family members we meet, they're so angry. It's so hard for them to see any kind of light at the end of the tunnel. And there's good reasons for that. And then other times we meet family members who literally are in such denial about it that they look, can't even see that they're being manipulated and lied to. So you do have to be able to see the truth, but it doesn't mean you have to call it out all the time. This video is sponsored by BetterHelp. BetterHelp has more than 20,000 therapists worldwide, which is one of the things that makes them so easily accessible. That is honestly my favorite thing about BetterHelp is that you can get access to the help when you actually need it. You guys know that I talk about getting help when you're in that right moment. Timing is everything. And the last thing that you want to do is start calling around to all these different therapist practices and waiting for weeks to get a call back if you even get one. Now BetterHelp, it's not a crisis line. It's not a hotline. It's real professional therapy done securely online. It's so easy to set up an account. All you have to do is go to betterhelp.com backslash put the shovel down. Don't forget to use that link to get an extra 10% off. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P backslash put the shovel down. You do need to have healthy boundaries. And it, that's probably the boundaries issue is probably one of the most complicated parts of helping someone has an addiction because it's something that I even have to go back to over and over is you got to really dig down inside and say, is this a boundary or am I controlling? Because sometimes we slide over into the, we're trying to control it place and we call it a boundary. We disguise it under the boundary category or whatever. So we're supposed to have healthy boundaries. And sometimes it can be the same boundary that can be the same requirement. Two people could say the same thing and one of them, it could be a boundary and one of them, it could be controlling because it has to do with your heart's intent when you're setting it up, right? Like, for example, if you were saying something like, you can't live in this house if you're doing drugs. If the intent and the real, like for real thought and meaning behind that is, because I cannot have you in this house because we have like kids here or because whatever happens to you when you use makes you not safe to be around or creates so much chaos. Like literally I can't have it here. The boundary, but if it's, you can't live in this house, if you're using drugs 
because you think if you hold all the power and the keys, because I hold a place for you to live and a car and food for you to eat, and I'm holding it over your head thinking, if I hold this over your head, then you're going to not use drugs because you're not going to be stupid and you're not going to choose drugs over your family living in the street. Number one, you're being naive and you're wrong because they will. <laughs> and number two, you're not, you calling it a boundary, but it's not a boundary. It's controlling. You're trying to use it to control something. So you have to get super honest in your heart with with your intentions and with your feelings. And they have to do that too. To be in recovery from addiction, you have to get super, like a superpower of being honest with yourself about your intentions, where you come from, why you're doing what you're doing. So both the family member and the person in recovery have to develop these skills on a level that most people don't have to develop. And that's why all my favorite people in recovery, like they're literally just, it's true that people that are struggling with addictions are, I don't know what the right word is, badder people than most normal people, right? They do morally wrong things more often. It's also true that people in recovery do better, more moral things than the average person. So I like to say when people get better, they don't just go back to their like, like they were before. They, they're better than they were before. So, because you have to grow these muscles, like all these videos you're having to watch you're having to get real about boundaries and communication and talking and honesty and integrity these are muscles that you're growing through this recovery process whether you're on the family side or the recovery side that most people don't have to like dig that deep into they're not going to have to go and work those muscles out as hard as you're going to have to work those muscles out because you're climbing a mountain and you're not going to get to the top of it without these muscles and in the end if you can learn all these things and change your heart no matter what happens to your addicted loved one, you will come out a better person and you will like yourself better and you will be happier in your own life. If you don't do this, their addiction can destroy you. Like I've seen a lot of family members be destroyed by someone else's addiction. And that person gets clean and sober and moves on and has a good life. But the trauma that it causes the family doesn't heal. And that destruction can stay in place. All these things I'm telling you, I usually tell it to you because I say, this is what you need to do to help them. But it's also what you need to do to help you. And you need to do it regardless because otherwise you turn into that other person that we talk about, that person that you don't like, that's resentful and hurt. And if you've ever heard the saying that hurt people, if you haven't, you have now. It's true. The people that do the most hurtful things are all people that have been hurt. Not everyone that's been hurt does hurtful things. It's what you do with that. But if you stew in that hurt and that resentment, what happens is eventually you feel justified in acting in certain ways that are hurtful to other people. <laughs> because maybe you develop this belief that the world is a mean, evil place. And if you let your guard down, it'll eat you up. And so you're walking around with this wall of defensiveness and big talk and all that kind of stuff all the time. If you get your heart hardened, you're not going to be able to receive any of the good things in life. So please look at yourself, figure out where is my heart stuck? Where can my heart change? So you do want to have boundaries. You do not want to try to control. The more you try to control, I will say this all the time, but I could literally say it every single video and it would, I would not be saying it enough. The more you try to control, the more you slow down the process. It happens almost every week now, usually more than once a week. I have somebody that comes into my office. I had it this week with a young person and the family, they started changing. They started doing these things. And by the time that I talked to this person, 
And most of the time, I don't get to talk to the addicted person. They go on somewhere else. And I never talk to them. But even the ones that I get to talk to, it's just amazing. Insightful. They're in the active stage of change. They are so ready to change. They don't spend any time complaining to me about their family. They get right to it. It's like amazing. And as an addiction counselor, it's so amazing because that never happens. <laughs> People don't come in to get addiction help. They don't say, Amber, I'm addicted to such and it's so bad. And I got to do, I got to get better. What do I do? I'm going to do everything you tell me. That's like a unicorn. But that happens more and more often in my office. And it's not because of what I'm doing. It's because of what you're doing. You're changing the way you interact with them. And usually in about six months, nine months, a year, um, their whole mindset shifts. It doesn't mean that they quit everything, but by the time that those months change, their whole thinking about it changes. They're, and they are so ready to make a change. And when they do it, it sticks. And a lot of those people are able to do it without ever even having to go away to treatment because they're so ready to do it. They're just done with it. They've had a heart shift. Your heart shift will create, can create, I shouldn't say will, because it doesn't always work. It can create, it's most likely to create a heart shift in the other person that makes them ready to make changes. You hear all the time, like if you go to Alan, you can't, you didn't cause it, you can't cure it, all that kind of stuff. And you're right, you can't cure it, but you can do some certain things that get people to open their own heart up to get ready to make the change. If you are watching on the playback or you're listening on the podcast, we are so glad that you're here. Let's see here. Carrie says, oh my, I remember going through this thinking. I hit bottom over three years and had that revolving door of clean and relapse until the event happened on 12-5-2008. And I knew that was it. And I was completely done. So for you, Carrie, it did happen like this hardship. It does have sometimes for people like, I call it like the Jesus comes down on the mountain moment, like all in one moment, <laughs> this magical moment. For most people, it's a process. And even for people like Carrie, it happens in one moment. It's probably kind of coming to that. You probably kind of felt it coming. And finally, it was like a final straw or something. And then that was it. But what was it, Carrie, that happened? Was it a thing that happened? Or was it just a place, a time you just finally got done with it? Tell us how you got there. Star says, I view my alcoholic husband as the enemy. Can you change that star to... I view alcoholism as the enemy because once you, if you can shift that in your head to my husband's not the enemy, the alcoholism is the enemy, then you can have the right strategy, right? Because you're not trying to fight your husband. You're trying to fight alcoholism and it works in a certain way. Once you understand how alcoholism works, then you can gather the tools and the strategies to defeat it. But if you're trying to fight your husband, then your husband is going to get very busy protecting the alcoholism. So one of the strategies to beat alcoholism is to get your husband back on your side and then together you can beat the alcoholism. Let's see. Katie says, finally got out of the bag I roll and my husband is sober and wants to talk to me about his sobriety journey. Your techniques work. Woo! Yes, I love it. It's like a testimony. Thank you. Yeah, it does work. It feels awkward at first, but usually if you start doing it, the heart shift will come. And I can tell that Katie's had the heart shift because once it starts working, you start believing more. I heard this person talking about, they were talking about the 12 steps once, and they were talking about the third step, which is came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. Now, regardless of the religious part, you can take that part or not take that part. It's up to you. But I like the way that they described it because they said, most people think that it's, oh, I believe it. And then I take action on it. But really what happens is I take action on it and then I believe it. 
So for example, it's if someone is standing at this top of this huge cliff and you're saying, jump, I'll catch you, jump, I'll catch you, jump, I'll catch you. If you wait for them to just believe you and then jump, guess what? It's not going to happen. It wouldn't happen if it was me. I could, cause I wouldn't do it cause I'm a chicken. I'm like, no, I wouldn't do it. If there was a tiger behind me, it was about to eat me alive. And my choices were be eat alive by the tiger or jump because you're saying you'll catch me. Then I'm probably going to jump. And then when you catch me, then I won't believe you. So action comes before feeling very often. So if you'll start doing the right things, a lot of times these heart shifts will happen. If you're doing the right things and the heart shift isn't happening, then there may be something keeping you stuck. And that may be when you want to talk to a counselor or work with someone to figure out why am I staying stuck? And maybe it's, maybe you're like literally stuck in a PTSD trauma reaction. And that's why you're stuck. Maybe you're stuck because you've been hurt and wounded so deeply that you need more than just time to make that better. There are some things that could keep you stuck, but usually if you change your behaviors, they change the way they're interacting with you, then the other stuff comes along, but it behavior first and then feeling. Let's see from Saska says, how do you detach with love as a wife of a functioning alcoholic? I don't react to the drinking, but I've pulled away emotionally because I want to protect myself. If I knew a little bit more specifically about what happens that you want to protect yourself from, then I might could comment on it better. Like when, when the person drinks, do they get nasty or violent? And that's what you're trying to protect yourself from. Or is it more like I'm trying to protect myself from disappointment? Um, you know, what's happening that's, that you're trying to protect yourself from. And then sometimes when you really look at it and you say, I'm just doing this to try to protect myself and you realize it's not even protecting you. Like, your invisible shield doesn't even work. If you are detached and you're detaching back from trying to control it, but you can't emotionally connect, that's a piece that's probably keeping you in a deprivation state and the other person. So if it's not safe to emotionally connect, that's one thing. But if it's like, a, I think that I'm keeping myself from disappointed, like the whole, I'm afraid to get my hopes up thing. That's like a fallacy because we just keep ourselves stuck in a dark place when we do that. And we're still disappointed when the bad thing happens. Eagle winged turtle says, what is the point of having contact with an elderly alcoholic parent who has been through rehab a dozen times, lived out of state and hasn't been sober for more than a year in 40? That's a good question. And it's perfectly okay to say I've done my best and I need to move on with living my life. I want you guys to know I'm never saying that you should stay forever and that you should put up with everything and that you should have endless tries. That's not what I'm saying at all to anyone out there. There is a point when you need to step back. The point would be if you still wanted the connection, that would be a point to do it. Or if you still were trying to help this other person and being hopeful about it. But there does get to a point where the, those things are no longer viable for you. And it's okay to step back when that happens. I have addicted loved ones who I have completely stepped back from. So there's a time and a place to do that. And then there's a time and a place to, to keep trying. And when you're there, usually you don't, you won't need me to tell you because when you're so done, I could tell you to stay and you would never listen to me because you're like, I am done. You don't need me to tell you, I promise. Cindy says, I've noticed when I don't mention his addiction, my son will talk to me about anything but his addiction. He's still in denial. He's such a nice addict, never mean, and he always helps us. If someone will talk to you about everything else, eventually 
they'll feel safe enough to talk to you about the addiction. It won't happen until they hit a wall with the addiction. But if you've proven that you're safe, confidant, that you're not going to be overly reactive, then when he hits a wall with it, he'll probably come to talk to you about it. That's my first thought. My second thought, Sandy, is I hate to tell you this, but these nice drug addicts, they're the hardest ones. They're really difficult because they're difficult to draw boundaries with because they are nice. If they're mean, it's a little easier to draw boundary with. So in some ways it makes it more difficult to deal with them. And because sometimes when people are like super people pleasing, they won't ever tell you how they really feel. And I always say, I'd rather someone come talk to me in my office and say, Amber, I think your stuff's like a load of crap. I don't have a problem <laughs> rather than just come in and constantly tell me like what they think I want to hear. Cause I'm just like, okay, can we stop playing this game here? So. Hopefully it's not that kind of nice. And if it is, that's okay. It just, for me, it feels harder. Nancy says, I often wonder what life would be like without addiction. I eat, sleep, and breathe about addiction. My son seems nowhere interested in life without fentanyl as we have open conversations. If you feel like you're, Nancy, if you feel like you're eating, breathing, sleeping addiction, then it's probably a sign that, you know, you're addicted to the addiction and that you need to get some space from it. Much as I love you watching my videos, and I do, you don't need to watch my videos 24-7. You don't need to read about addiction 24-7. You need to focus on building a life for you um, because otherwise you're in just as an addicted state as the other person, and it's just a miserable life for you. So please don't eat, breathe, sleep addiction. Have other outside hobbies and interests. Sometimes you have to put a time limit on. I'll talk about it only this amount of time, or I'll watch only this amount of Amber videos. Even if you have to do that, you do that. Katie says, taking a step back and not getting on him all the time helps so much. Yeah. And hopefully, Katie, like we were talking before, at first it probably felt awkward and it probably felt like you're doing the wrong thing. But then when it starts working, it gets easier. It's the same thing for an addicted person. When they first stop using, it feels awkward. It feels like they're doing the wrong thing. But... Eventually, it gets easy. Thanks, everybody who was watching live. And thank you for all of you who have joined us on the playback or on the podcast. I'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to our audio. But did you know these episodes are recorded live on YouTube? Join us Thursdays at 1 p.m. Eastern to participate in the discussion, ask questions, give and get feedback. Any featured links discussed in this episode can be found in the show notes. And lastly, my goal is to spread recovery faster than addiction is spreading, and I can't do it alone. You can help support my mission by leaving a review for this podcast or sharing it with a friend.